Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a world years gone by where we worked, you finished your job at the end of the day and you couldn't do it until you went back to work. And it's not to say there wasn't repetition or that there wasn't pressure in that space, but it was a different kind of pressure. And I think in its freedom, in a lot of ways, it's been sold to us as freedom and efficiency and you get more flexibility, you can choose, you can work on your own terms, but we haven't figured out how to do it. Like yeah. This is the first time we're doing it yeah. where there's no kind of ground rules and it's different for everyone. And yes, it's flexibility. And yes, there are uh, mums with new bubs who can do a little bit of work at three o'clock in the morning. That that, that helps them, but it doesn't serve most of us yeah. <laughs> having that kind yeah. of ability to tap into it. So I think, yeah, we've, we've really got to be a lot more conscious about setting some ground rules. That's psychologist, author and CEO, Ali Hill. And this is episode 259 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hey, and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 259 of the show with psychologist, CEO, and author of the book, Stand Out, a real-world guide to get clear, find purpose, and become the boss of busy. More about Ali in just a moment. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new to the show, welcome to the gig. I'm glad you're here. This podcast, what is it? It's a conversation that you get to be a part of, and it's a conversation that is designed specifically to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Now, sometimes this conversation will be with a name you know. Sometimes it'll be with someone you don't know. Either way, I guarantee, no matter what, in the next hour, you are going to hear something that you need to hear. Something in the next hour, and a bit that will help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's that's all I'm trying to do. Who am I? I'm Washington Ginsburg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a husband. I'm a stepdad. I'm a cavoodle great uh, grandfather. I'm not allowed to call myself his dad. I'm a grandfather. Um, I'm a I'm a brother. I'm a bigger brother. I'm also a younger brother. Um, and I'm from Australia. And I work at the moment on television on a show called The Bachelorette. I count roses in very sharp suits right now. I've just written a book, just written a book called Back After the Break, which you can get if you want. Osherginsberg.com is where you can get it. I've got an email from this week. I got an email from uh, my publisher, Catherine Milne, who was on our show last week. Um, I got an email from Catherine and Kajal, uh, my, um, my publicist. They wrote me an email saying, hey, congratulations, just to confirm that as far as Australia goes, with the amount of books you've sold in this country, you are now a bestseller. Congratulations. Congratulations to you. You helped me do that. You, I'm a bestseller. You're a part of a best-selling book. I'm absolutely thrilled about that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That <laughs> just means the world to me. Um, so, yeah, I wrote a bestseller. 
<laughs> something that's just nuts. That's really something. Um, a, a big thank you to the, everybody that came along. Speaking of the book, there's a live show based on the book um, that involves me singing songs and telling stories and showing videos. Um, thank you, everyone that came to see the show last week in Sydney. It turned out that I, I was worried about my voice not being so okay. It, it was okay. And I'm very grateful for that because some people came down from, some people flew down from Brisbane for the gig. Some people busted in from Canberra for the gig. Others drove down from up north, Central Coast, Newcastle, etc. A lot of people who'd made an extraordinary effort to be there. For that, I am very grateful. And I'm very grateful that I was able to hit the high A for you. Um, it was a cool night. It was a really good night. If you'd like to see the show, a show you'll get on a plane for, um, like I said, it's me telling some stories, singing some songs. Afterwards, we hang out and um, I'll sign your book. We'll get a photo. We'll have a chat. There are still a few tickets available for Melbourne on Thursday, the December Thursday, the 13th of December. The first show on the Friday is a sellout. Um, so the second show is the night before that. Um on Thursday, 13th of December. Brisbane on sale later this week. Keep an eye out on Instagram. I'll let you know when I pull the trigger on that for sale website and then, um, boom, get your tickets. All shows are meet and greek. All shows feature Mike Mill meet and greek. Yes, we're going to sit around and eat Dolmades. I love Dolmades. All shows are meet and greet and all shows feature Mike Mills, also known as Toehider, who's done all the sh music for this podcast since it started. A big thank you to everybody who wrote in during the week on Instagram, also on email. Some great Podsy pictures coming in. A Podsy, what is it? It's a picture of what you're looking at as you listen to my voice right now. You are probably listening to this on a phone unless you're one of the three people that listens to on a desktop. You're probably you're listening to it on a phone, and there's a camera on that phone, so take a photo and send it to me. Uh, tag me on Instagram, that's the easiest one, or just email it, email at gmail.com. David sent a, a pic of his uh, solar-powered head wobble dash ornament uh, in Kayama the other day, which was great. Mark was listening to the show poolside after doing some laps of the 50 meter. And Tess sent me some great pictures. Tess listens to the show while she's dumpster diving. If you've never known what that is, dumpster diving is harvesting food, perfectly edible food out of dumpsters from behind supermarkets because they can't sell them after a certain amount of time. Um, and she feeds herself largely from food that gets thrown away. She sent a few photos of what she eats and honestly, the fruit and veggies that she pulls out of the dumpsters, they look really good. I mean, if you've ever been to a market, a fruit and veggie market in Southern Asia or the South Pacific, um, the stuff that she's pulled out of the bin look way better, way better than stuff that I've bought from a market and eaten. So uh, she goes just fine. In fact, after I, th after I saw what she sent to me, I, I thought twice and made sure that I ate every single thing in the crisper this week. Didn't want anything to die, the, the black death of narcosis in the bottom of the fridge. Oh, I've got some spinach. I won't eat it today. Oh, I've got some spinach. I won't eat it today. Oh, I've got some spinach. It's black mush. I am contributing to the world ending. Yeah, got to eat it. You buy it, you eat it. Uh, Keep them coming. I love to see where you listen. Either tag me on Instagram or just shoot them on the email, email at gmail.com. That's the best place to put them. Big hey to the Facebook group as well. There is a group of people who listen to the show and there is a group of them together on Facebook and they all join together and we all talk and we have conversations. We support each other. Some great support there for Ali who's sharing at the moment. She's sharing with us her story about heading to the Northern Territory to work in healthcare there. Uh, Nicole who's getting a lot of support on her current journey towards moving every day. A lot of encouragement 
encouragement from Nicole, for Nicole and a lot of photos of what she's up to, which is really great. And Bronwyn, who's been writing and taken a lot of inspiration from Catherine Milne's episode last week when it came to sharing your story and asking herself when she sat down, is this worth cutting down a tree for? I love, I love it. I'd love you to be a part of the Facebook group. It's great. It's growing every day. Osha.is slash FB group. Uh, love to see you there. Uh, better check in. So to check in with you, to check in this week, how are you going? Are you going okay as we push towards the end of the year? We're in the final final push. Our house, a lot of exam revision going on. A lot of everyone's cramming to get just smash out these last six weeks before we all, you know, take a month really in Australia. We do. Um, I, however, I've got to be honest with you, my body's kind of shutting down on me a bit. Uh, two courses of antibiotics in three weeks and weird rashes appearing out of nowhere, they are signs that I need to pump the brakes. Um, I've been talking a bit over the past few weeks with you here on these uh, in these shows to check in with you and letting you know, being honest with you, that I've when I get up in the morning, I, I write my gratitude list, but I also give myself an anxiety score every morning just to kind of keep track. There's apps on your phone and stuff like that, but they just annoy me. I turn all the notifications off, so I, I, I don't use them. Uh, I tend to um, just write down in my book every morning and I give myself a little score. I give myself a score, uh, what I felt like the moment I opened my eyes, what I felt like um, three minutes later, and what I feel like now, um, which is usually about 15 minutes after I wake up or 10 minutes after I wake up when I'm sitting down writing. And, and anyone that's got anxiety knows that those can be three very, very different things. Um, and I'm noticing it, it's working pretty well. And I'm noticing the ebbs and flows of emotion and anxiety that do go up and down. The cycles peak and trough. And that gives me great power to get over the hard days because I just have to flick back a couple of pages and go, oh, yeah, there's a few zeros in a row a couple of days ago. And there's a few threes and fours out of 10 before that. And there's a few zeros in a row a couple of days before that. Okay, so this goes up and down. I'll be all right if it's bad on this particular day. But it's Audrey, my wife, who's noticed what those ups and downs are related to. I just feel it. Audrey sees why in many ways. Um, she sees the confluences of deadlines, travel and commitments all piling up and then notices the accompanying reaction in me, mainly because of the way that I behave towards her, which is not great. I, I see it the other way. I see it from the inside. It it's not great. So I'm really grateful for Audrey's insight to this um, because I, what happens with me is I start to feel the anxiety, which for me is a lack of control over future outcomes. And then to compensate... Uh, I guess it's like the snacking of, of action. I begin to take on all kinds of commitment in an effort to have some control over future outcomes. You know, I start to try and do lots of things to try and be in some control at least. And what I do is I set myself for this, all these stressors that then cause me more anxiety. And I wouldn't have seen that if it wasn't for her. So we had to have a sit down on the couch the other day. And uh, my friends, I got told. She's kind enough to tell me. And I'm hopefully smart enough to listen. She sometimes has to tell me more than once, which sucks, but I'm sorry, Audrey. Uh, but I got told, and I'm grateful that she took the time to tell me, but I got told, stop doing this thing that I think will make the uncertainty go away. Start doing what I know will make me feel less anxiety. That being controlling and nourishing, but controlling and nourishing what's in front of me, starting with my family relationships, my own body, putting more time into managing what I have committed to and being very careful about new things that I take on and making sure that they are in alignment with what it is that I want to achieve in life and, are, you know, is it 
aligned with my morals and values, etc. So after she was kind enough to tell me, I was very grateful that she did. The few, the fifth, third time in a row, I think, is when I started to take action on what she told me. I'm sorry she had to tell me a few times, but she did. I'm grateful that she did. I took to my calendar. I took to my calendar and I just put into my calendar recurring things that I know need to happen. Just the very basic stuff that has to happen. I need to spend, I don't know about you, but I can't believe I even have to write this down, but I've got to spend a couple hours a week just on bills and shit. Apparently, they don't get paid if you just leave them in a pile in the corner of your desk, which is a system of work that I've been doing up until now. I need to spend at least an hour a day responding to emails. I'm sure we all do, but I need to actually block the time out so I don't try and jam it all in right before bed. I've got to have a morning off here and there. Now, this is where most this is where weekends work for most people who work nine to five, because I don't work nine to five and I'm constantly stupidly trying to fill my life with things that help me avoid just being with how I'm feeling. I don't have that moment at the moment. I've also put in lunch with a friend once a week. To, to, to connect with other people outside of my family. Time to train my body with another human to connect with another person there. And I shoved all these things into my calendar as recurring things, all right? They're in there now. Now, they can move a day forward or back or two. That's fine, as long as they happen within that week. And now, I've yet to live out the last days of the outlandishly overcommitted schedule that I've locked into, but once this is done, I'm, I'm looking forward to a new way of being kind of with Woodry's help developing a system that won't allow my reactive self to take over and push me into things that aren't great for me. Um, she's the one that told me to just put it in your calendar. Just put the bloody emails and stuff in it. I know you've got to do them. Just put them in there. Put them in there. Otherwise, you see clear space and you shove stuff in there and then you've run out of time to do the things you've got to do that day anyway. So it was, her, it was all her idea. And I'm smart enough to know that my ideas aren't always the best idea. Um. So, yeah, developing a system that kind of won't allow my reactive self to take over and push me into things that aren't great for me. Hopefully, that'll lead me towards a few more zeros in the mornings. That's the plan, at least. And a big part of that is, of course, stay close with my wife, stay close with my psychiatrist, stay close with my psychologist. Um, Speaking of psychiatrists and psychologists, I've always been fascinated by people who dedicate their lives to the study of how the brain works and helping people like you, like me. That's where my guest comes in today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. 
My guest today is Ali Hill. She's the CEO of Australian financial review Fast 100 company Pragmatic Thinking. She's a psychologist and the best, the author of the best-selling book Stand Out, a real-world guide to get clear, find purpose, and become the boss of busy. Sounds like a pretty good idea, right? Just kind of like what I've been talking about. Her podcast is called Stand Out Life. I have been on it. It was a lovely conversation. It can be heard wherever you hear podcasts, probably exactly the same place you're hearing this one. She's also got a lot to say about psychology and the role of psychology in the workplace, in negotiation in the workplace, care at work, and how to manage stresses that do come with a modern life. But you'll hear about all about what we talk about in the next hour. She was kind enough to come around to, um, actually, it was when we were getting the bathrooms done. So she was kind enough to come around to my manager, Lauren's house, uh, who I, I kind of borrowed her kitchen for a couple of weeks and uh, did all my podcasts in there. So uh, this is a great chat and I'm grateful you're a part of it with myself and Ali Hill. If you like what she has to say, find her on Instagram at Ali Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L, A-L-I-H-I-L-L, Ali Hill. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for coming. You turn up with luggage. Are you going somewhere or are you, are you coming from somewhere? I've just arrived from the Gold Coast, oh. um, sunny Gold Coast, and uh, in Sydney just for the day and heading down to Melbourne tonight. All right. So, so you, you, well, you've stopped in uh, from the airport. Well, sorry that it's – this is going to acclimate you to what Melbourne's going through Well, that's what I thought. This is probably a good, <laughs> good little yeah. breaker, circuit breaker in yeah, between Gold yeah. Coast and this Melbourne. This is not Gold Coast here. Wow, this is great. We haven't had rain in Sydney for so <laughs> it's long. Pocketing down. Yeah, this is awesome. Oh, this makes me really happy. Oh, this is good. How are you today? I mean, it's a big travel day for you. Are you all right? I'm great. Yeah, yeah, I'm great. I have been up early. I was up about 4.30, get on a plane, but no good. Yeah? Um, yeah, feeling really good. Well, I'm glad you're here. You're a, a very successful human being, and I'm grateful that you could be here on the show because of what you write about and what you talk about is very – well, not only is it the forefront of my life at the moment, um, but there's a lot of lot of people listening are really kind of resonating because I'm, I kind of have been sharing over as I mentioned to you just as I was brewing this tea before we hit record. I've um, lived a life uh, medication in my life, but I've been off meds for five months now, and part of living life off meds is uh, taking the responsibility to what can what do I need to do to fill the gap where the meds were. I can't just leave that fallow that's got to have something every day mm. and something structured and something in it every day and so the kind of work you're doing is very much in that realm of deliberate action around routine around how busy i am around all this kind of stuff and so i've actually you've actually turned up at a fantastic time because just <laughs> just yesterday uh you know talking to my wife because um you know, I, I, I live a life that is probably equal to that of many of your, you know, the people you work with of like, I don't have a workplace anymore. My work's in my hand. It's in this mm. phone right here. It's always on. And it's an impermeable membrane that comes in and out of my home life. And at any one time, I was saying to Audrey the other day with this book deadline going, I was saying, look, at any time I have 100 hours of unfinished work that I could go and do. And every time I'm not doing it, in the living room, hanging out, making food, being with you, I'm almost kind of battling that desire to, oh, got to finish, got to finish, got to mm. finish, got to finish. And so it's hard. It's hard to stay present. Oh, it's this, and that's part of that. It's constantly in the back of your head of what yeah. else, what else is on, like, am I, is on my plate. Oh, you have such a cute Sorry, Frank, she's coming <laughs> over some colours. Um, 
you know, there's something else. There's almost this anxiety, this concern about what else am I not a part of, mm. even when we have nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> even when we've cleared the decks, even when there's nothing there, we fill it. We fill it with what we should be doing, what we think other people should be doing. I should be better at this. I should be on top of that. But you're right. Um, I don't know whether you've ever read Seth Godin, so he's got a number of books. He's a, probably the most prolific author on the planet. Best four-line <laughs> email every single day. You're like, how do you think of this stuff? Amazing. And what do you mean this is the 47,000th day you've done this? <laughs> Did you make the first, like the very first day there was email, Seth Godin sent out his first five-line, here's some thoughts for the day. <laughs> when you talk about routine, when you talk about discipline, right? Like he yeah. just keeps showing up yeah. and, and some of it's not great and some of it is genius. Yeah. Uh, probably about two years ago he did send out one, that one that really resonated with me and there's so many that have, but one of it, it was called Dancing on the Edge of Unfinished and it almost kind of becomes the, the way that we live our life now is that we are constantly dancing on the edge of unfinished. Probably... And I don't know, in a world years gone by where we worked, you finished your job at the end of the day and you couldn't do it until you went back to work. Like you just couldn't, whether it was factory, whether it was a farmhand, whether it was making something, you went home and e you did even, other things. Even if you were in an office, even if you were, a, say, a high-ranking entrepreneur, there's a physical limit to the amount of paper things you can carry home to work on that night mm. that you can then carry back whether yeah. you, you know, take boxes and boxes of legal pads. It's just, it's kilograms. You are limited physically by the amount of work you could actually take home. Yeah. But so now, we were more likely to finish things and yeah. have that sense of satisfaction and then have the gap away and then come back and start again. And it's not to say there wasn't repetition or that there wasn't pressure in that space, but it was a different kind of pressure. And I think, yeah, what you're describing is it's constantly mm. with us. Yeah. And in its freedom, in a lot of ways, it's been sold to us as freedom and efficiency and you get more flexibility, you can choose, you can mm. work on your own terms, but we haven't figured out how to do it. Like yeah. This is the first time we're doing it yeah. where there's no kind of ground rules and it's different for everyone. And yes, it's flexibility. And yes, there are uh, mums with new bubs who can do a little bit of work at three o'clock in the morning that 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 helps them but it doesn't serve most of us yeah <laughs> having that kind yeah. of ability to tap into it so i think yeah we we've really got to be a lot more conscious about setting some ground rules it's funny you talk about freedom i got my first i was just thinking i think i got my first blackberry before there was iphones there was blackberries um i got my first blackberry probably 2005 maybe 2006 and what was really notable to me was that on the, on the box that the BlackBerry came in, there was no picture of the BlackBerry. It was someone riding a mountain bike. It was someone having a coffee. And it was, it was one person having a mountain, riding a mountain bike, a couple having a coffee, and someone going for a, going for a walk. And we still want that. Right. Right. <laughs> that was however many years ago. We still want but that. But this is, you know, that was on the box. So going, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't like all of your email in your pocket. This is these three things. Yeah, you can go mountain biking. Yeah, you, you can, can go mountain biking coffee. if you have this thing. Okay. No, you can't because you're halfway down the trail. Me, oh, hang on. <laughs> How long have you been a psychologist now? Ah, oh, oh gosh, now we're going back. Um, I keep saying 15 years, but I've probably been saying that for the last three or four. That's so right. It might be 16, 17 yeah, years. Yeah. And what was the path to that? How, when did you feel that this was the thing that you wanted to do? 
Yeah, look, it's it was interesting. It wasn't a there wasn't kind of a moment. There was definitely I had an interest in in helping people and working in the health industry, and I was looking at becoming an occupational therapist, and I was working in that kind of area. Um, what's really interesting is that I am terrible with blood and actual hospitals. <laughs> so, so whilst I was interested in in working with with people and in that health industry, that was sort of never going to be a pathway for me. I was also dead set between high school and university to have a gap year. So I wanted to go over to England, do what people do, go and have a year away. Did you? Yes, I did. I did. I worked at a um, private boarding school over in Cornwall, uh, just a really, really tiny little place just outside of Truro. Lovely part of the world. Stunning part of the world. Beaches have got rocks on it, which freaked me out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I went to Cornwall once and we went there to, I'm going to drop a name. We went there because that's where Tori Amos lives and we were there to interview her and we show up to the, I don't know where the train dropped us and then we got a cab from there to right outside near the interview venue, right? And the beach was just, I don't know, 100 metres over the hill and we'd just left sunny Bondi, all right, and we got there in the middle of, probably late summer so it was kind of a day like this you know it was rainy and cold and we're 100 meters away from the ocean and i just left bondi and i hear could the swimmer on the left there please stay between the red and yellow flags like, holy <laughs> shit it's bondi rescue here too <laughs> no actual waves <laughs> wow it was a stormy day yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it was stormy day. i'm like you're keen buddy it's like 15 degrees oh. today out of the water <laughs> yeah it's, it's summertime what are the merits you know, people may be considering this for themselves or maybe for their kids. What are the merits of a gap year? I loved it. I loved it. For me, it was that break. I um, We grew up in the country, so I, I came from... Which country? I moved around a bit. My dad was with State Forest, New South Wales. So I was born down in Mildura on the banks of the Murray River. And then we moved up to the mid-north coast, a place just south of Coffs Harbour, Yurunga. And then up to Moolumba, right up on the New South Wales-Queensland border. And, uh, and then I did my last couple of years, years halfway through year 10 and then 11 and 12 in a tiny little place called Dorigo where they had like 2,195 people on the, on the sign when you walk in. Uh, it's in behind Coffs Harbour. Oh, okay. So inland. What, in behind 100, 200, 300 k's? Uh, no, no, no. Probably it's um, oh, probably an hour from Coffs. Uh-huh. Yeah, All inland. Right. So scenically beautiful. And we got to live in amazing places because Dad worked in forestry. So we were all around, always around national parks and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, so, but I went from a high school with, you know, a thousand kids in the high school to 200. I had 20 in my year. I was just exposed. All mm. of a sudden people knew me and I, the principal even sat me down and said, anything you do on the weekend, everyone will know it by Monday. And this was my introduction to this small country town. I just went, I want out of here. Prepping you for a life of social... Oh, my God. There was prepping you for a modern life of social media because that is what life is like now. Anything that happens, mm. 10 minutes later, everybody knows about it. So, it yeah. scares the hell out of me. My kids, I've already told them they're not having a phone till they're 25. <laughs> <Nah>, you've got <laughs> to, no, you've got to. It's the, it's it's the, the way, world. That's yeah, the, I know. the way their social networks are constructed. Oh, and it's a big part of identity creation yeah. and what am I going to stand for and what am I going to yeah. stand against. And, and it's um, you get to have a voice and you get to have a platform and I think it's important <laughs> in that space. There's just, again, a bit like the busyness stuff, there's new ground rules, there's mm. new ways of, and I think curiosity is a really beautiful way to come at it, is going, okay, let's sit down. 
now and let's talk about it. Let's just not take it for granted. What was it like going from a town of 2100 to the UK, which is just, I mean, I'm guessing you landed in London. What was that like? Landed in London and uh, I didn't have the right visa to be working over there. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was this 18-year-old kid. I was actually only thinking about this the other day. I think, how the hell did my parents let me do this? Because it was pre-mobile phones, pre-email. So the only thing you did was ring each other once a week. Otherwise, I had no idea what I was doing. So I landed in London, this 18-year-old Australian girl, and the immigration man just basically said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, well, I'm here for a gap year. I'm going to be working at this school. And I, because I'd come from a small country town, I hadn't organised it through like normal gap years. <laughs> private schools organise it with a private school in the UK. I'd just written letters to random schools and one had written back and said, sure, we'll take you. Like that was, that was, <laughs> that was it. So naive when I think about it. So I landed, didn't have the right visa. I just remember sitting in this lineup, just going, "What am I? I'm going to be on the next plane back here. Like, just how do I face all my friends that I've just told I'm going to have a year off? What do I do now? Um, unfortunately, I had friends of friends, family friends who were meeting me there in London. And so it was only because they had picked me up uh, that the immigration person said, come on in. Um, you can go. I'll put you on a just a, um, a visitor's visa. I expect you'll be out of the country in the next week. And that was kind of it. Basically, I couldn't work while mm. I was there. As it turns out, my grandma is from England. And so I could have got an ancestral clearance, mm. which then gives you five years and you can work and mm. you have that flexibility to come and go. And I had a friend two weeks later, a week later, actually, who was flying from Sydney to London. So my parents got my grandma's birth certificate, photocopy it, gave it to my friend at Sydney Airport, met me in London and uh, went into the Australian Embassy and got my ancestral clearance <laughs> and then went down to Cornwall. So it was a bit of a whirlwind to start. But wow. For me, it was, um, I guess, just I, I've always probably had this adventurous spirit. So it was just going, let's just see, let's just um, explore that kind of world. So the world of uh, kind of overwhelm and busyness and stuff like that that you help people deal with now, did you experience that during that first year out with the structure changing around you? Because you go from a school structure of like bells go, period start and end, here's lunch, here's little lunch, here's school's over. How was that year for you? Again, because I was working in a boarding school, I was right, helping out in that. So I actually, it was a beautiful transition. Yeah, yeah. So, and again, come back to your question around, would I recommend it? Absolutely. Yeah. I just think it, for me, it was such a great way to to um, go and experience the world, but you do have this really soft transition. Mm. I mean, you now need to be the adult. You now need to uh, step up. There were mm. things that I had to do that I had to take ownership on. The lady, the teacher that I was working alongside was an absolute ball buster. <laughs> like she was scary. <laughs> she was working proper with Proper boarding school. Proper boarding school. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. Yep, yep. Not, so, just in, not just in Harry Potter books. They no, actually no, exist. No, she existed yeah. and I was kind of the good girl had to do right. So for me that was that, was that exposure to yeah. now I'm working um, and not only I have to do that but what is it that is okay in a workplace and what's not okay. So it's interesting that that, that come into play as well. But then being able to have, I think it's then making those decisions around what do you do on the holiday break? Um, where do you go? Where do you hang out? How do you plan that? How do you make sure you've got enough money to afford that? What are you going to do in those, those kind of times off? So that's all that growing up mm. that happens when, you, when you're overseas. Yeah. And then at university when you, you return, you're like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I came back and the only reason I went to, I went to Griffith Uni in Brisbane. The only reason I went there is because I need to defer for a year. So I need a university where I could defer and behavioral science, which is the psychology. Um, it was the mark that I needed 
the highest four. So it just made sense for me to put that as number one. So I'd gotten into that, was able to defer. Um, so, yeah, came back and, and went into psychology. Wow. The beautiful leafy green campus, Griffith University. Yeah. I grew up in Brisbane. So, uh, yeah, and we used to play gigs there all the time. That I, 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 Griffith has a place in my heart because at the time the arts degree there was the lowest tertiary entrance score, I think they call it OP now, required and I missed out on that too. Right. <laughs> I didn't even get into art at Griffith. So yeah. Just go and hang out there. No, that was my, that was my, my uh, you know, wow, I did so badly at high school I even missed out on arts at Griffith. <laughs> arts degree at Griffith. So you, you, you're pursuing this career in, in psychology and how did the idea of using what you were learning start to creep into helping people deal with kind of more modern work workplaces? Where did you see a need for that? How did you identify that? There's a couple of different areas. So I, I did my... Um my undergrad degree and then went into vocational rehab, so helping people with disabilities and workplace injuries get back into work. So it's very much working with um, physios and OTs and doctors and workplaces. So that was that interesting to interesting dynamic to work with organisations and say, what do you need? And work with individuals saying, where can you fit in? What's your identity? What does work mean to you? And seeing how that kind of came to pass. And I found that how important conversations are. It was absolutely critical. There were employers who were ringing me saying, the person's been off sick, they haven't rung, they haven't rung us, they obviously don't care about work, we're, we're going to try and nail them down. And then I'd talk to the person I was working with and they would say, but work hasn't rung me, they obviously don't care about me, I'm definitely not going to go back there. And I'm this would you two just get together? Yeah. <laughs> so I just realised there was this gap in people understanding and how we relate to each other, especially mm. when things get hard and uncertain and human almost. Yeah. There's not a, um, a way of figuring that out that's outside of the insurance system and the processes and the way that we kind of work. So must that be, was, that must, was must be tricky if you're like just kind of think about that. Say if you've, I don't know, never, you know, just considering this now, like if you've had a, if you've had a workplace injury or you, you know, have had an ongoing thing with, I don't know, a process that you're required to do at your work, it might even be something as simple as the wrong chair for a year and a half has left you with a, a thrown out lumber and now you need a different thing. But the person that was dealing with you didn't believe you for so long and it must be difficult to kind of manage that resentment from not only the superior but also the employee, that your client. And like how do you get them to, no, this, you've got to go back even though you've got shitty feelings about this place and all these shitty feelings now associated with the work that you do. It must be difficult to remember why you like this job, all right? Let's help you get back there and don't worry about Bruce in HR, don't worry about Jenny in HR, whoever, I'm just making their names up. You know what, that's the, I guess that's the challenge, right? It's so interesting and, and what we know now is that that mind-body connection is so strong. So if people are feeling resentful, if they're feeling on the out, if they're feeling isolated, it shows up physically. Um, so if you've got pain in your back, it can inflame that pain, it can inflame that experience, it can make people... Um, you know, that injury actually be exacerbated by a whole range of different things. So it's intertwined. Um, so it is absolutely interesting of how you kind of pull that apart and how you almost work with organisations to have those conversations, to bring people in. Let's put on the table your fears, your concerns, rather than just sweep it under the carpet and hope it'll be okay. When did we as a culture start doing this kind of thing? When did we start to value the 
health of the employee, right? Like when did we stop going from this is the job, Jenkins, you do it. If you can't do it, we'll find someone else to do it. Sorry that your back hurts. No, I'm not even sorry. I don't care for shit that your back hurts. I need 50 of these done by the end of the day. When did we go from that to Jenkins, your work is so valuable to us and, you know, you're only doing 42 of these a day. How can we help you get to 50? Because your work is valuable to me enough that I'm going to hire someone and cost me money to help you fill those last eight. When did we change it? What what years, what kind of decades did that start to shift over? It's a really good question. I think it's probably about, um, I mean, there's probably when unions be, had a voice. Right. Uh, so when employees started to have a voice, if you think of construction areas mm. or, um, you know, big areas where, where major injuries and even fatalities yeah. might happen, that's often the places that are highly unionised. And so I'd say that's where some of those conversations started to start. Um, come about. If you think about where we are now, so much of that work that is unsafe or traditionally was unsafe is now automated. So it's done by machines, it's done in other ways. We can set up environments so that they are absolutely safe for people. You're not actually going anywhere near a bandsaw, you're not going anywhere near something that might harm you or put you in harm's way. Um, which means that the way that people turn up is now more critical than ever. Their, their mindset, their energy, their passion for the job, their interest, their sense of feeling part of something um, is, is absolutely critical and we're seeing it in a whole range of different organisations, in businesses and I think it's only going to get more and more where it's the individual that actually matters. So I think these conversations are going to happen even more and more. Why do you come to work? What are you interested in? Why come to this job now? because um, you can work anywhere. So what is it about here? What are you proud of about work? How can we grow you as a human being, not just someone who can do the work that we require? Is your job also helping employers see the value in nourishing the employee like that, like that there will be an economic return from nourishing, taking the time and effort and money to nourish someone like that? A huge part of what we do is working with organisations around culture, which is around people. So who are you looking after? How are we having those conversations that we need to have. And it's not that it, I'm in this place where, where I'm a psychologist and people will say this is the soft, fluffy stuff, this is the nice stuff, um, and yet it's the hardest work to do because these are when we have to have the tough conversations. If someone is not delivering, if they're not turning up, they're not doing the job, they're not doing the task, they're, they're coming in with bad energy. If you've got a restaurant and it's all about customer service and someone is down in the dumps, it has an impact on your bottom line. Uh, the same is true if that same person is working in accounts payable and they've got to work with <laughs> how do we get accounts paid, how do we get this sorted. They're not inspired, they're not lead up, they're not um, going the extra mile, they're not seeing something that's not that needs to be fixed and doing something about it. So it absolutely has an impact, but it's not the soft, fluffy stuff. It's some of the hardest thing that you will have to do. There's not a procedure and a process, but it is about turning up and being human. And it starts with the leaders in the organisation. It actually starts at the top. How willing you are to look at yourself, 
how am I turning up? Uh, how am I impacting on the people around me? What's the, I think it's that Oprah quote, what's the energy I'm kind of bringing in the room? It's absolutely tangible and it makes a, a huge difference. I mean, there's there's so many statistics around around the impact of cultural shifts and employee engagement. Mm. Uh, we know that it, it makes money. Um, it's not just a nice thing to do. It actually makes money at the end of the day. And so it's, yeah, it's critical. Without revealing a client, can you give us an example from your work where you've seen a, you know, a big shift? Yeah, yeah. We worked last year with a engineering company. Um, so these are very intelligent um, people. Who They're engineers. People, we know engineers. engineers. Very, we know very engineers. smart. Yeah, you don't accidentally become an engineer. <laughs> it's <laughs> very purposeful. Um <laughs> And we were working with 200 of their senior leaders here in Australia. And they are, when it comes to leadership, it's about a process. Give me a process. I'll sit back and I'll judge whether it works or not before I'll step into it. This is the critical analytical thinking, which is why they are brilliant at their jobs. It's why they get employed as engineers, because that's what needs to be done for them to create what they create. Yeah, when I'm driving over a it. bridge that is 100 metres above a ravine, I want someone with that kind of brain to have built yep. it. Yep. I don't want someone who's like, yeah, I've got this Pinterest mood board of how good the bridge is going to look. No, no. I want someone who thinks all night about stress fractures. That's what I want. <laughs> Absolutely. And they are process orientated. So what I do my piece of work, I do it to the best that I can and then I pass it on and you do your piece. So in organisations, they often talk about people working in silos. Mm. So the left hand doesn't talk to the right hand. So we would, we were working with these senior leaders and it was a, a long-term program, so it was over nine months. At the end of that nine months, we actually had some of the leaders stand up and do a presentation about what they had learnt, what they had put into place. And there was this one guy who stood up. And if you had looked up engineer in the dictionary, his photo would have been on there. Like he was the epitome of engineers. And he stood up and he said, I just want to share with you some of my notes from day one of this program. And I'm sitting up the back just holding my breath because what comes up on the screen is things like um, an absolute waste of my time. They call this science question mark, question mark, question mark. Absolutely ridiculous, soft, fluffy crap. Why am I even here? Oh, my gosh. So, but that was the mentality was day one. He then said, "I, but I turned up. They were my notes, but I kept turning up and I came to these these." programs and I came to these sessions and there was one speaker in particular, we had a number of speakers who were involved in the program, one speaker in particular who said, if you want to change the status quo, you have to start with yourself. And he said, I don't know why, whether I was just in the right headspace, but I just figured out the status quo I was fighting against was me. The only common denominator in all of my crappy positions when things hadn't gone right was me. And I needed to change me first. And so he then went on to describe what he'd done. And really all he did was started to engage with these people. He started to come in in the morning and say, good morning. And it sounds really basic, but it wasn't happening. He stopped and had lunch with his team. He would ask them, you know, what was going on in their world. Um, be genuinely interested in the answer. Because often we, we ask that question, we're not actually interested. And from that, they came to him with, with ideas, with things that they'd been thinking about, stuff that they wanted to change in their workplace, and they were fantastic ideas. His boss was over in Malaysia, um, and his boss actually rang him one day and said, I don't know what you've done, but your team is different. 
And and he wasn't even physically here in Australia, but he had noticed the difference and the impact on that. And so technically his job was very much the same. Um, aside from now they had a conversation, now they were actually connecting with each other and he had a team that he knew he could rely on at any point in time. He had a team who he trusted infinitely that if there was something that wasn't right on the job, they would call it out, they would speak up about it, they wouldn't hide it because they didn't want to be seen as not being the expert. Um, and he just enjoyed the work more, right. <laughs> which meant that he, he was going to be a long-term employee and a long-term leader in right. that organisation. And there's a lot of value there for particularly in this age of where process specialists will become the most valuable people to be employed because everything that can be will be automated. Yeah. It's terrifying, but it's true. That's yeah. what's going to happen. Um, as my buddy who plays in, a buddy of mine is a, uh, he's a hired gun bass player, all right, plays in the biggest bands in the world which are usually like the two guys you remember from the record cover, but they don't get on with the bass player and the drummer anymore. So it's just the two guys from record cover and some mercenaries in the back laying it down. My buddy's one of those guys. And so he's traveled around the world with a couple of different bands being the guy in the back. All right. People don't know that it's not the original bass player, but he's back there. He says, number one, I've got to be able to do the work, but bigger than that, I've got to be a good hang. I've got to be a good hang. I'm doing 15 hours at a time in a van, in a plane, in a, with these people, yeah. you've got to be good to be around. You've got to be a good human to be around. You've got to be able to do the work, but you've got to be a good human to be around. Otherwise, nobody likes being in that van. <laughs> and it's almost as equal as being a good drummer, like yeah. not being a good bass player. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, you've actually got to be able to do well, that. Yeah, you've got, you've got to do the work. You've got to be yeah. able to deliver. But who you are when you, you know, to be around is a really, really important factor yeah. in, in the gig. Not everyone's going to be you know, a senior leader in a multinational engineering firm. But what could we learn from from the experience of the bloke you just described? For me, I think it's about that what I love about that story is his curiosity to actually look at himself, to actually go for all the stuff that's pissing me off, for all the stuff that I'm complaining about, for all the stuff around me that I just wish would be different. Uh, he realised that he had complete control over all of it. And I think that's true for all of us. There is, and, and it's not to say there is stuff, I mean, there'll be people going, yeah, but, you know, this has happened to me and it wasn't my fault or this, this was completely outside of my control and, and absolutely I'm not denying that at all. But we do have this capability to stop and go, okay, given that that's what's happened, how do I want to respond to this? How do I want to turn up? How do I want to re rewrite the ending of this story? Because it is what it is. Um, but we choose our reaction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting, there's a word that I often talk to people around, isn't that? And that word is acceptance. And it's one that I hesitate to even start to say because what's the first thing when I say you've just got to accept it? What comes to mind? Well, bear in mind. I am. <laughs> You've probably done this one. I'm, I'm nearly eight, I'm eight years and three months yeah. sober. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. a big part of sobriety is acceptance. A yeah, big part yeah, of staying yeah. sober is... Did anyone ever say that to you early, really, really oh, early yeah, on? it's the prayer you you've say. Just, you've just I'm, got to accept it. I, I, how do I put this? Uh, I'm in a fellowship of other sober men and women who work together following a series of steps mm -hmm. to stay sober. Um, and acceptance... Not only of just being acceptance that yeah. I 
am powerless over alcohol. Just got to accept it. Just have to accept it. Be an acceptance that this thing is shitting me to tears, but drinking's not going to make it help, not going to make it better. Drinking's not going to change it. The only thing that will change this thing that I don't like, that it's raining outside and I can't walk the dog because he can't, he doesn't want to poop when it's raining. <laughs> I can't change those things. I can change how I react. That's the only thing that I have control over. Yeah. The so only this, thing that I have control over. Socially, this word acceptance, like if someone says I have to accept it, feels like it's passive. It feels like it's giving up. But I think what you've just described and the power that sits behind it is this active acceptance is non-judgmental. It's not bad. It's not good. It just is. And the until you can get to that point, um, you can't then make any changes or you can't kind of move forward. So it is that importance of going, okay, what's happened has happened. Um, it is what it is. It's not bad. It's not good. It just is. I don't need to put a good or a bad label on it. Um, maybe if I could have gone back and rewritten it, I would have chosen something different, but it is what it is. So now what am I going to do about it? Now where else can I go? And when you do that, there's often a ton more choices than you ever thought possible. <laughs> so much power in that though. There's so much power. And even if my, if my limbic system just fires and instantly I'm not in acceptance, instantly I'm in denial, instantly I'm like, but you, but, 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 but. I still have the opportunity to, if the first two or three sentences come out of my mouth, go, walk it back and go, oh, hang on a second. That was me just reacting in in fear. And then you accept that, right? <laughs> you accept your Sorry reaction. about that. Yeah. You know, you feel it. Okay, I'm just in touch with this thing that's happening in my stomach. Okay, all right. Or right, I can see what's happening. I just don't want to accept that that's there. Okay, then. Well, I can't change it. So now that it's there, what am I going to do about it? And the, But there's so much power there in that choice then. It's the ability, as Zach De La Roca from Rage Against the Machine would say, you get to take the power back. Uh, he was talking about something else, but I feel it works here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's okay. a big one. That's a really, that's a really, really big one. Tell me, uh, when we first sat down, we talked about this kind of impermeable or permeable membrane between between work and home. What are some signs? What are some signs? Because it's subtle, man. It's like it doesn't just suddenly happen. It's really subtle. What are some signs that you may be in a dangerous place when it comes to your boundary between work life and family life? I think it's important to recognise that that boundary is different for everyone. And so rather than kind of, because there'll be some people who go, I'm really happy that there's no boundary that's blurred, that um, I I basically live and breathe work. Um, and if that's where you're at and you're really conscious about that and you really are purposeful and have a strong intention around it, beautiful. So there's n it's not about it needing to be a certain way or that you only do work for eight hours and then it's only two afterwards. Like, And, again, that comes with that kind of flexibility you choose. But it also does mean that you have to be conscious about it and you've got to be intentional about it. So I think some of the signs... <laughs> If I can start with me, if I know for me personally, um, and this is a beautiful question for all of your listeners to go know your own signs because it'll be different for other people. Mine are that I snap at my kids quicker than I should. Um, that I get cranky about little, little things that normally wouldn't bother me. Um, and it's almost that look in their eyes when they, they kind of go, wow, where did that come from? That I go, oh, there it is. <laughs> that's, that's me. It's not them. I get really flustered, so I will start a million things and not finish anything at home and work-wise. So I'll just, you know, how where you just move papers, <laughs> you just you get a pile or you start 
doing all sorts of things. So I'll just get really flustered. Physiologically, I get really kind of anxious and my heart races and it's almost like a few on edge. It's just this kind of constant overwhelm. Um, and my husband gets the worst end of me. So I, I won't even look him in the eye. I'll just, again, a bit like the kids, I'll get, kind of get snappy. So for me, they're my clear signs that boundaries are out of whack. Um, I haven't, it's almost like I'm resenting something that I have to do. And resentment's such an interesting emotion. When it shows up, it's usually because we haven't actually been clear about what we needed or we haven't actually set, set that boundary. We've said yes to something when actually we meant no or not yet or not for three hours. I could have done it for 10 minutes. Um, that was just a huge shot of lightning out there. Really? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we're in the middle of a fantastic southerly storm it's coming, coming in off our the way. Bay. That's exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry. We, I, I, live, I live about a kilometre and a half from the ocean mm. and every now and then we've got this fantastic thunder. storm system that's yeah. coming up. Just the energy that's happening it's out there cool, right now. It's cool, isn't it? It's going to be amazing if we could harness all that energy. Oh, hang on, we can. But <laughs> for some reason, we want to burn coal I'm instead. Doing it. Uh, but look, yeah, when you see the power of that, when you see the energy of that bolt of lightning, there's like hundreds and hundreds of kilowatts smashing into the ocean. And you go, like, yeah, I'm pretty insignificant. My little us here talking about our phones pinging and getting angry at our kids. Doesn't matter for shit, does we it? We just let it all go. No, no. That storm could be like, fuck you and your phone. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Nature's, nature's got it all going on. Nature's got it all going yeah, on. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. So, so, now, so know those signs for yourself. And, yeah, for me, they're some of mine. And what causes that for you is that um, allowing the work to start, well, let me just ask, what, what causes that for you? So I'm a psychologist. I'm going to go inwards. I think some of that is that belief as well. So I feel like I should. I should take it on. I should be doing this. So um, I'm the CEO of our business. We've got 15 people in our team. And I still carry that, even though I do this work and I, I operate in this field, I still carry that belief that I should be the good girl and I should have it all together and I should be able to do it all. And that's what a CEO does. Um, they And they probably should burn the, burn the midnight oil. They should be lighting candles at both ends. They should be working harder than anyone else in the business. Like all of these beliefs and whether they're mine, they're societies, or they've just been handed down through generations, I think they drive the things that we say yes to or that we put on our plate. I certainly know that for me. So it's a bit of that um, and the fact that I haven't then gotten clear around what is it that I actually want to do. And I haven't actually taken the time to be really purposeful. And I now do it with my week, um, every single week, because every week is different where I'll go, what's on, what's already scheduled, but where do I want to put my time? And even though it's scheduled, I can actually say no, like I can cancel it. I can pull out of that. I can, <laughs> like, it's not something I want to do plenty of times, but it's certainly on the table. And if it's right for me to do that this week, uh, then then that's something that I'll do. So I think it is the, the pressure of what we think we should be doing. It's some of those kind of core beliefs. Um, and then it can be the pressure of other people's expectations. So other people's kind of saying, you know, we should be doing this or can I, can you do this for me? Um, but even though it might be other people, the reason why we say yes is usually because of those, those core beliefs. So 
Then talk me through how would you, because this is what you just said, pressure of other people's expectations. Here is a, a, a real-life example from someone close to me. Uh, there's a friend of mine. He is, let's just say he works at, uh, he's on a contract, a uh, two-year contract, and he works at, um, I'll change his industry. He works, what's a similar one though? Um, he works uh, in a, uh, a large multinational, let's say that. He doesn't, but let's just say mm -hmm. that because it, you know, a lot, very, very, lot of structure, a lot of hierarchy, a lot of protocol about who talks to what. Mm -hmm. um, oh, Jono, your contract's up in uh, January, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, Philippines project, yeah, the deadline's been brought forward. We're going to need five hours on Saturday can't pay you there's no budget left you good <laughs> that, is, that is word for word what was said to him yeah all right and this is a person with two kids right all right and he's the he's you know yeah he's the main guy as far yeah. as money coming into the house yes yeah. all right that that's word for word what was said to him yeah how do you then deal with that how do you then take yeah. everything what you've just said about yeah, yeah. boundaries about why do i do it about knowing what a bit when stuff like that goes on yeah, and it's um, it's tricky. There's not an easy answer. I mean, everything in me wants to. You want to be able to say, just say no, John. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just say, say no way. Thank you very much, and I'll do the five hours in my work time, and we'll get it done. Um, but it's not that easy because, as you've described, as a you know family breadwinner, bringing in the money. What do I? What impact does that have? Especially if it's connected to contracts, so you can't help but go. They're pushing through the work. What does this mean? Um, so there's, I guess, for what's going on for me is there's kind of the interim and then there's kind of the long term. So what is it that I need to learn? What do I have to do now to look after me and my people? And what is it in the long term? Is this an organisation that I want to be a part of? Is this the way I want to be treated? Is this going to be a long term project? Uh, and if not, then what's next and where do we go from here? Again, without knowing the, the ins and outs, I do wonder, and this is a curiosity in part of me, is can we start to have those questions in organisations and even just call out, look, I'm wondering, and when you mentioned the contract before, is that on your mind that my contract's ending and you really want to kind of push that through? Is that what's going on? I'm just kind of curious. Um, and when you ask this Saturday... I can clear the decks, but one of the fears that I've got is that that's going to turn into every Saturday between now and January. What's your intention? How's that going to work? So can we be brave enough to lay it on the table in a way that's courageous but also curious without pointing the finger? And I think that's part of that acceptance thing is we, we have to do the work before we step into that conversation because otherwise we, we become inaccurate as, you know, accusing mm. and they'll get defensive yeah. and you won't actually get the outcome you want. Yeah. But we, and people who work in workplaces, they're very aware of what organisations are trying to achieve. They're very aware of the business behind the work. And I don't think we can, sh we have to shy away from that. Businesses exist to make money and it's okay to talk about that. So if this contract is finishing is it likely to extend? What's that actually mean for you? When you say five hours, what is it that needs to get done? Could it be done in two? Could we have a couple of us working on it and we'll bust it out in two hours on Friday afternoon 
and not do it on kind of Saturday. So stepping into those uncomfortable conversations, if we can do it with curiosity and do it with empathy for the other person who has even said that, um, allows us sometimes to go, there's not just a yes or a no answer. Maybe there's another way. Maybe there's something else we can look at. Yeah, I can do it on Saturday. Do you reckon you, you know, you can come in as well? Yeah. <laughs> Is there another, like, you know, if we're in this together, like, and it's almost, and in that environment, it, someone needs to be the leader. And sometimes the leader is not the person with the title. <laughs> and that who, who is the leader or who is the hero in the relationship, in the way that we work, in the way that we connect? And how can we stand up for that? So that's, yeah, that that's where my goes. <laughs> what you've just described, what you've just described, that conversation to have with an authority figure or a superior, that would involve a skill set that I do not have. Mm. All right, I would just be full reactionary. I'd be mm. like, how dare you threaten my livelihood? And then the next sentence say, you know, now that I'm fully primed to be like, oh, I'm on notice. Yeah. And now that I'm fully like, shit, yes, what am I going to do? Start of a school year, contract ending, looking for a job in January, summer holidays, fuck. Oh, hang on, now you want me to prove that I'm worth turning over the contract? Damn it. I would just be full reactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the problem with the um, with the yes, I'll come in and I'll try and prove that. Um, and if I prove my value, come January, you'll give me another contract or you'll extend my contract. Is that we haven't, we don't know. And this happens, and this is what breaks my heart. Is that this happens in workplaces all the time, and I see it. Um, Again, not so much in the context you're talking about, but I, I have a program for women in leadership roles and I see it for women all the time is that they will work hard to prove their worth, hoping that someone will notice and they don't. And it's not that it doesn't go unnoticed, but it definitely goes unrecognised or un, no one ever says thank you or acknowledges that. So rather than kind of working blindly, how can we set that out and take ownership back on that so what am I working for how is this going to work yes I can do Saturday but I can't do any others between here and here or I can but I can only do a couple of hours can I put in a couple of other hours mm. in between um, I get that you don't have budget but and we always have other currencies right so is there another currency I get that you don't have budget but it's my daughter's soccer and uh, you know sports day on Wednesday can we do a bit of a flexibility around that so what are the other kind of currencies at play but you're right they, you know, and this is there's not a skill set yeah. we're not taught this our no. parents don't teach this we don't get taught at school how to stop and have these conversations no. so yeah coming back to that acceptance stuff is accept the reaction it's okay to have that reaction <laughs> it's okay to have that in the moment um and, and even if it's come out to that authority figure, it's okay. Mm. But no, it's going to require a different changing of the gears. And usually we, we wait for the authority figure to be the hero, to look after us, to look out for us. And the problem is you're putting then your future, if your livelihood, in someone else's hands. So what is it that, that you can take control over? How could you be the hero in that conversation? Wow, that's so full on to, to hear you say that, putting your – because I've felt that so many times. I work in a seasonal industry. I work in an industry that's based on ratings. I work in an industry that's based on looks. So, you know, and to to constantly have my future in the hands of like 
like so many uncontrollable variables that I have nothing to do with. You know, we could make the very best show we could make, but then we go up against, I don't know, say another network buys the most extraordinarily successful franchise ever to exist in television and puts it right up against us. We had no idea it was coming. We could have the best show ever. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> I'd watch that too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's an amazing yeah. show. And there's nothing I could do. It's a better product. Yeah, it's a better product. And there's nothing I could because it was developed in secret, and they got no idea it was coming. And we, you know, combat it. You know, there's nothing we can do. And it can happen overnight, right? Overnight. Like I've, I've oh, um, it has many times interviewed on my podcast, but I know you have as well, Maz Compton, and she talked about her experience mm. um, in radio and 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 that shift of gear and it. Yep. It takes time, but it's not unique to the entertainment industry anymore. Like gone are the safe, secure jobs. Mm. Gone, even government these days. They're not the yeah. safe, secure jobs. The, the the future is unknown and often that is seen through the lens of fear. Um, but coming back to the convenience, coming back to the opportunities of the internet, of the things that we can connect with, is we we have a lot more impact on our future now probably than ever before as well. So, and even what you're doing, which is so beautiful with this podcast, is actually what can I do? Where can I have my voice? Where can mm. I start a conversation that is completely within your control? <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of it. That's a big part of it because I couldn't yeah. get, I, I couldn't find a place in radio that was doing the thing that I kind of conversations that I wanted to have. And so, fuck it, I can just start it now. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Uh, we talked just before about we've used a few examples of people who are in structured, large structured organisations, which is a lot of people. But there are more and more and the very nature of, you know, the technology that has brought you and I together is the, there are more and more people who are able to operate as, as solo operators in ways that they've never been operated before. They're not just the person. I get this thing from a wholesaler and I act as a retailer and I said it sell it to my clients. No, I am also chief marketing officer, you know, accounts payable. I am accounts receivable. I am, you know, new business. <laughs> I'm old business. I'm HR. I'm everything at once. And talk, you know, for people who are in that situation, Talk to me about the difference between being busy and being productive because this is the big mm, one, right? That is a big question. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, there's a lot of excitement in that. There's a lot of adventure and there's a lot of, again, if you are all of those hats, it is all on you um, and you're not, you're not outsourcing it to anyone else. So it's on you. But that also comes with a huge amount of pressure. Um. But we have also socially made it um, okay. It's almost become, I think Brene Brown talks about it, being a status symbol, the, of busy being a status symbol. So when you ask someone, how are you, the standard response is usually, oh, I'm so busy. I've got so much on my plate. It's like, oh, well, you think you're busy. Well, I had to restart my house on the weekend. You know, it's kind of how can we one-up each other in how busy we are. And you walk away from those conversations feeling exhausted. As opposed to, I mean, we never hear someone going, oh, yeah, it's a great weekend. I didn't do much at all. I just had a really mediocre weekend, <laughs> just chilled out and I'm really happy about it. Um, and so we're, we're kind of constantly chasing this busy. I think, and again, it's, it's a personal distinction between what's busy and what's productive. Um, and the reason why it's personal is actually what helps you get towards where you want to go. Uh, so the two things that I have found in my research and working with 
organisation leaders, but also individuals in a whole range of different environments. The the people who step up and, and find that productivity in a place that you, you think, how are they doing it? And they're energised by it. They're not run down. They're not overwhelmed. They're not resenting it. They're actually energised by it. It's usually because they're really clear on their purpose. So they know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I know crystal clear why this matters and why it matters to me, but it also might be why it matters to the people that I'm doing this on behalf of, whether it must be customers, clients, um, for a non-for-profit, whatever. Um, So they're really, really clear on purpose, but they haven't just stopped there because I think if it's all about purpose, um, often we don't get anything done because we can talk about all the great things we want to achieve and how we want to change the world and how everything wants to be different and I'm going to impact this, this and this, but your friends get pretty sick of hearing that if nothing's actually happening. And you can, you can burn through all of your startup capital by yes. being busy and yes. you feel like you're getting heaped up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the next part of the equation is progress. We need to be making progress and progress needs to be the goal. It's not about perfect, but it is about momentum and moving things forward. So the difference between busy and productive is doing the things that actually move things forward. So, and I've seen people do it. I've done it myself in, in startup. They will obsess about the logo, the font, the color, the placing on the website, the, um, you know, how many pages on the website. They will spend weeks and weeks and weeks writing their bio. They will spend, you know, trying to get the, the right words here, here and here, but they haven't actually gone out and spoken to a single customer or a client or anything that's going to bring anything in the door. So we it's almost like a distraction. We distract from the things that we have to do by doing all of those other things that we think we should do. And that's where busy becomes non-productive. If you actually stripped out and said, right, in the business, what matters? What's the stuff that brings in the money? Um, what's the most important thing? What are those actions that get the traction, that get things moving forward and prioritise those first. Put those into your calendar. Start with those. Um, If it is about the website, websites are important, but they're not critical, really. It is about customers. It's about conversations. It's about relationships with suppliers. It's about um, the messages that I'm getting out there. You can upgrade your website. You can do all that down the track once you've got the capital (laughs) to do that. But if you're in startup phase burning through capital, you need to go out there and do the the core things first. Um, So yeah, that's true for me. I know in our business, we have a saying that coffees equal work. So when we're out having coffees with potential clients or people who might be interested in the kind of work that we do, usually that equals work. Now it's not perfect you know, equation that we don't have the best coffees in the world where the, the, every time it leads to clients. But I know that if we get too busy doing the work and all of those coffees dry up, then our funnel dries up. So that is almost a bit of a metric each week is going, okay, who are we catching up with for coffees? Um, how are those conversations going? And the moment that that dries up, I know that we've got a bit of a problem. So it's about getting clear on what are those actions for you, um, those actions in your business that are actually going to make a difference and what do you have to do and is there any way that you can outsource? Now, I know in those early stages you might not have the money to pay people but like we said before, there might be other currencies, there might be people who can help you out, there there might be a way that you can um, bargain whether it's through product or through time or through connections or through relationships. Um, so, yeah, get 
get adventurous around it. <laughs> when uh, you mentioned before, uh, you mentioned before I was asking about when you know that the the, the, the boundaries are, are getting too, you know, off kilter and the needle's going the wrong way and you're getting snappy with your kids and you're, um, you know, degrading your relationship with your husband. Uh, I know exactly what that's like. How do you, and people will probably relate very much to that, whether they are in a business or not, people will go, oh, I know when that happens. I know when I'm not having a good time, when I start to get snappy, when I'm degrading the relationship. And it could be for any, for any purpose. You know, you can, be, you can be busy, but, you know, you're essentially running on a treadmill. You know, you're getting tired, you're getting sweaty, but you're going nowhere. All right. It feels like you're working though and it feels really exciting and you go, oh, I'm tired, I'm sore, I should, everything should have moved, but it doesn't because you're not going in any direction at once. How do you, yourself, how do you heal from that? In the moment, there are three things that I do. Um, these are really just tactical things. I, first of all, I light a candle and my husband has no friggin' idea why, but it just works. It's just kind of this grounding sense. Um, I'll usually clear my desk, so I'll actually kind of sort things out. Um, and then I sit down and I write a to-do list. So again, I just get it out of my head. So in that moment, if I'm in a work environment, that they're the three, they're my three kind of go-to. Outside of that, what I have done is being been really purposeful about investing in myself and that's been a journey to get to because it's felt really selfish to do that especially as a mum especially as a business owner especially as a CEO it's felt selfish to actually take some time that was always the thing right down the end of the list I'll get to that later at some point I'll do that but I now prioritize exercise um, it's really critical that I get out and do something I just get moving and I, I used to do a lot of running I used to be really purposeful around you know it had to be for a particular race and it had to be you know particular I was tracking time and that sort of stuff now I've I let all that go. If I go out for a run, if I feel like running, I'll run. If I feel like walking, I'll walk. Um, and if it's for 15 minutes, that's okay. It doesn't have to be for a set period of time, but I just know for my own mental health, for my own groundedness that I need to move. And for years and years, people, uh, I've heard people say, you've got to get out of your head and into your body. And I never really understood what that meant um, until, it was actually until I went to a Tony Robbins event um, out of professional curiosity last September. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been or if listeners have ever been, but it's a hyped up rock concert for four days, it basically. Is. <laughs> a friend of mine described it as just imagine the greatest TED talk you've ever heard in your life and all of the, you know, most uplifting songs from Hillsong, um, but secular, all at once. 14 hours a day for three straight days. <laughs> With one meal break. <laughs> it's yeah. Insane. Yeah. But so much of that is get up, dance, move. And it's part of his technique is that physicality, get into state, get out of your head. And it wasn't until that experience that I went, wow, that, that's what it means. It's actually because I'd always thought about getting out of your head, which is back in your head. It's back in that thinking. So, so movement is so critical. Um breathing all of the research is coming out around i mean it has been for, for years and years and years the importance of di diaphragmatic breathing really deep breathing um grounding yourself i did some beautiful work with a voice coach a lady lucy cornell here in sydney and uh the two there was a bunch of things i got out of it but two things um i mainly got out of it was 
to just relax the lower part of your body. So relax your ass, you know, when just, <laughs> which is such a good visual, right? But it is that drop, that breathing, because often when we're in anxiety, we're in that really heightened in our kind of chest, almost throat breathing. So really drop that breathing. Um, the second thing she said was just to remember to, can I swear on here? Yeah. I have said fuck about 17 <laughs> times since you sat down, so, so don't worry. <laughs> um, she just said fuck it. Like whatever you do, if you've dropped into that breathing, then it's just fuck it. Whatever happens, happens. I've done the work. I just need to turn up. Um, so those two things have held me in really, really good stead if I need to get up and speak at a conference or if there's something that I need to do is to breathe, be present and to be here right now and recognise that there is plenty of time. There is time to get done what needs to be done. But that's not what it feels like. It feels like because I'm constantly getting dopamine hits and serotonin hits off of my phone, it feels like time is precious and things are running out and the world is exciting and going and Instagram's happening and look at this person doing this thing online, why am I not doing that? I've got an urgency about everything. Mm. We get sold that, right? But we don't. There, there is plenty of time. There's, um, what was I reading the other day, with a lady in her 80s taking up dancing um, for the first time in her life. Um, there is time. There is plenty of time. And even if I think about something that, whether it's a project or a report that I have to get written by the end of the week, I used to, and, and it's a conscious thing to shift this, but I used to get really panicked going, I've only got a week left, I've only got a week left, and it was this constant anxiety. Um, and I would spend more time being anxious about it than actually doing the report, right? So we spend so much time worrying about what we should be worrying about rather than actually doing it. Until I kind of sat down and went, well, how long do I need to work on this report? Probably three hours. It's Monday, it's due Friday. If I think in 24-hour blocks, I've got however many that is, four times 24, there are plenty of hours for me to find three hours in that space. I could do that in a block, in three one-hour blocks. I could do it in six half-hour blocks. How do I want to schedule that out? Um, and it was almost that mathematical way of looking at it that eased the calm and went, okay, there is time. I'll just do an hour on it now. I'll get some momentum and I've got plenty of time as the week goes on. It's, so, it's exactly what I was describing as well. I was making the tea and I was telling you, like, this book deadline is tomorrow, mm -hmm. right? Mm. And I know I can get through 12 pages in an hour and the deadline's tomorrow. It's like, okay, and I'm freaked out because I haven't finished the book, haven't finished the book, haven't finished the book. What I keep reminding myself is like, I have 47 pages to go, all right? That's four and a half hours. I have four and a half hours between now and noon tomorrow yeah. when I'm going to walk in and put it on my editor's desk. Yeah. I can find four and a half hours. And if you think you can't find four and a half hours, I'm going to tell you something terrifying, yeah. Alison. I don't know if you've ever done this. You go into your phone, you choose battery, at least on an iPhone, <gasps> Android can this. do this. Oh. You go on a phone, you choose battery, you change the, uh, you go look at app usage and you look, just look at how much time in the last 24 mm. hours you've spent on Instagram, on Facebook, mm -hmm. on Snapchat, on Words with Friends or on Candy Crush. Yeah. All right. And you go, fuck me. That is, well, I did it the other day. I was like, I spent two and a half hours in the 16 hours I've been awake doing that. Yeah. You've got time. If I'm quoting <laughs> someone for two and a half hours of my time, I tell my manager to go out and go hard and that is worth a lot of money to that person to have me for two and a half yeah. hours. I'm like, well, I could have 
shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You've got the time. You've got and the time. you know what? And here's the thing that, you know, really is like Facebook and Instagram will continue without you. Everybody on there does not care if you don't post for two and a half hours or react or comment or like or anything. No, no. Run It'll- this experiment. And, and again, I come at this from, I usually say to people, think of it in terms of an experiment. Give yourself eight days and run an experiment. And whether it's to take, so I've taken Facebook off my phone. I know you just looked at me in shock and horror. Oh, my God. I do check it probably twice a week on my computer, but it's off my phone. I haven't missed it. I haven't missed it at all. But whatever that experiment is for you, it might be social media. It might be leaving your phone at home when you go out with friends or it might be living in the car if that's too anxiety-provoking for you. I did an experiment probably 12 months, oh, 18 months ago. Ariana Huffington books Thrive came out about sleep and the importance of sleep and there is a new book out at the moment called Why We Sleep and it is mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing on the health ramifications of sleep and how important and we should all be getting seven or eight hours sleep. Um, but at the time I had I had a couple of young kids and I hadn't slept eight hours for, I don't know, six years. But Ariana said, yeah, I prioritise it every night, I say no to gigs at night so that I can make sure I get my sleep. So I thought, if it's good enough for her, I'll give it a go. But I wasn't sure whether I could or not, so I, I ran this experiment called I called it eight for eight. I wanted to try and get eight hours sleep for eight eight days and just to see if I could. I've done fatigue management courses before, like I've run them. I know about sleep hygiene. I know what you need to do in order to get a good night's sleep. Um, so I thought, right, this first night I'd set it up. I'd said to Darren, look, I'm going to, this is my experiment for the next eight nights, so I'm going to be going to bed early. Um I turned off all the blue lights, so no TV, no computer, no iPad, no phone um, for a couple of hours before I went to bed. Like I'd timed it all, um, had my sleepy time tea, had a warm shower, had, you know, done my deep breathing. Um, Come nine o'clock, I, you know, put the low dim lights on, candles, you know, did a bit of reading, turned the light off and then laid there for two hours, my brain ticking over to the point where I'm now panicking because I don't have eight hours left because I've got to get up. I've only got seven hours and 45 minutes and Mm. that was going over and over in my mind. That exact same night at about two o'clock in the morning, my daughter came over to my side of the bed and uh, tapped me on my head and said, mom, I don't feel well. And then proceeded to vomit into my hand. So I spent another hour (laughs) tidying her up. So I didn't get eight hours for that first night. But because I had this experiment, because it was only eight days, um, I didn't throw it out. It was like, okay, next night I just eddy up and I give it another go. Um, And over those eight days, I probably got eight hours sleep three of the nights. Um, So not every night, but I definitely got better quality sleep every night. Um, I read a book in eight days, which had usually taken me probably five months to read. Um, And I just woke up feeling better. So there's, there was so much else that came out of running that experiment. So I think that's part of it for those listening, whatever it is that you want to change. And again, because it can feel like another should, it can feel like another thing on our to-do list if we start to panic about that and then, and then it, it becomes counterintuitive. So just think of it in terms of what, what are you going to experiment with? Can you yeah, leave your phone? Can you take candy crushed off your phone for eight days that's all you can get it back after eight days but just see where that turns up um and see whatever that experiment is i'd love to hear i love the idea of that it's not 
and and again, you know, my I just go back to my um, my experience with sobriety. Like, it's not for the rest of your life. It's just today. And sometimes, Alison, it's just till lunchtime. Sometimes it's just this hour. So you need when I'm really when it, early in the early years of of sobriety. Sometimes it broke down that much, yeah. but as long as I broke it down to that, manageable. Mm. Totally manage. It's the same like you've run distances. It's the same like training for a marathon. Yeah. You don't just start and one day show up in the Gold Coast Marathon and run 42 Ks. You start with a K. You might even walk it. Mm. <laughs> and it's the same with feeling overwhelmed. It's the same with feeling like you're caught in a job that you hate or you can't get out of. You. It's the same of feeling like you. there's nothing you can have an impact on. It's like, what can I have an impact on this hour? Who's the the coffee shop barista who's serving me my coffee, I can say good morning to and have a g'day with them. Um, just bring it back to it's the same principles. That's extraordinary. Like yeah. even just, just breaking it down, I just had the idea of like here's this overwhelming thing. All right, break it. Write a, like you mentioned lists before. I might try this. This might be my experiment. What's the thing I'm like what's this massive project? All right, break it in two. What are the two things I need to do? Bang, bang. Break them in two. Now I've got four. Bang, 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 bang. Break them in two. Now I've got eight. Bang, 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 bang. What have, now break them in two. Do it like a couple of times. And so I've got this, all right, all right, those are the steps. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yep. Pretty simple. All right, then where's that time I found before by pulling those things off my phone? Okay, how am I going to fit that into those steps? Boom, boom. All right, then. I've got eight days. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, and is there any of those steps that sometimes happen faster if you do it with someone else? Like if there's someone who mm. has done it before or they just have a way of bouncing things off, that half an hour with yeah. them can save you three hours down the track. Yeah. So it's also that you don't have to do it all. That's extraordinary to, yeah. I remember, yeah, when I first got really sick, we were talking before about how, and I've talked on the show before about when I first got really sick, I went, I went, to, I went to, obviously I went to my workplace and said, by the way, this is what's going on. Don't mm-hmm. worry, I'm getting, it's managed. And everyone was cool with it. And that's the other, the full-on thing about mental illness is like, as long as people can see you're managing it, everyone's fine. Yeah. It's when people can see that you're not managing it, you're trying to self-medicate or you're just trying to knuckle through. It's like, that's when people have a hard time working with you. But I remember going to my, my incredible boss, um, Stephen Tate, and he said, you don't have to do all this by yourself. You don't have to manage it alone. We're all here for you and we're all here to help. Yeah. It just gave me goosebumps. Well, <gasps> it was, well, you know, as someone who works in workplace, to hear a boss say something like that to an yeah. employee, this is, this is pretty freaking good that he did that. He's, he's a man that he gave me my career twice. He's an amazing man. Um, but, yeah, you're right. You don't have to, you know, it's, it's not all you. It, um, it feels like it's all us. But we don't have to look very far to find the next person who'll be like, oh, no, I'm totally there. I'll absolutely help you do that. In fact, it'll make me feel better to do so. Yeah. We love helping other people, but we really struggle to ask for help. That person's right there. They're right Guarantee there. Guarantee they'll be right in your life. Yep. You just have to ask. You've been awesome. Thanks for coming around. It's Bloody been awesome. Great. Super great. great. I just wish I had a bigger company so I could hire pragmatic thinking to come and look after me. I don't have a bigger company. It's it's me. We'll run an experiment. <laughs> maybe. It's me maybe, maybe one day I'll have enough employees that I will employ your company to help Done. me. But I'm sure there's people who are listening that go, that's a really good company. I like this woman. She's great. She can come over to our place and help us figure it out. That'll be good. I'll and bring re- the licorice tea. Uh, yeah. Licorice tea is the best. Thank you so much. Um, it seems to be a break in the weather. I hope you don't get delayed flying out of Sydney to Melbourne, but I'm just going to say you may want to head to the airport early. 
<laughs> we will do. We'll do. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to shoot your photo real quick and then you got it? Awesome. All right, sweet. Thank you. That was Ali Hill. You can find her on Instagram at Ali Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L. Thank you so much to Ali for being on the show. Check out her podcast. It's called Stand Out Life and the book is called Stand Out. If you are in Melbourne, good on you. You live in a beautiful part of Australia, beautiful part of the world. And if you're there on the 13th of December, you, if you're free can come to the show that I'm doing with Mike Mills and uh, a couple of hundred other people who've already bought tickets. There's a couple of tickets left. I'd love to have you there. You can get tickets for all the shows at osherginsburg.com. Melbourne, December 13th. Brisbane, February 8th. Tickets on sale this week. I'll let you know when. Massive thank you to a lovely man from Melbourne by the name of Andy Ma, who did the audio production for this show. Another lovely man from Melbourne by the name of Mike Mills, who did all the music for this show and the live show. And Rachel Barrett, my podcast producer, and indeed, I should tell you, the producer of my life. Uh, The calendar I was talking about earlier is the one that Rachel wrangles. I would not have a life without Rachel. So Rachel is the reason that I get to do everything that I do. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Rachel. And thank you for listening. Thank you for helping my book become a bestseller. Bloody hell, I wrote a bestselling book. We did it together. That's amazing. Uh, If you need anything through the week, send Osha email at gmail.com. Jump on the Facebook group. I'd love to have you to be a part of it. Osha.is slash FB group. Thank you so much for being a part of this show. I'll see you next week for episode 260. Unreal. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 